Hello everybody and welcome once again to Elvis the Ultimate Fan Channel. Creative Workshop is an historic recording studio founded in 1970 by songwriter and producer Buzz Kaysen. It was the very first recording studio established in Nashville's Berry Hill District and was one of the first independently owned studios built in all of Nashville. Berry Hill is now home to nearly 40 recording studios. The studio was originally built as a place for Kaysen to develop and produce new artists. He and his engineer, Travis Turk, wasted no time doing this. Before the paint could even dry on the walls, they were in the studio tracking a young songwriter from Mobile named Jimmy Buffett. When Travis left, Brent Maher became new chief engineer and oversaw the building of a brand new state-of-the-art control room and renovation to the live tracking room in 1976. Shortly after, in 1977, Elvis Presley was booked into Creative for a week-long recording session beginning Thursday, January 20th. However, things didn't quite go to plan. I'm delighted to say that Brent joins me on the show today to share his memories of that time with us. Hi Brent, and you're very welcome to Elvis the Ultimate Fan Channel. Well, I'm thrilled. Uh, I'm thrilled to be with you today. And uh, I'm looking forward to our chat. Yeah, and so am I, because uh, one of the topics we're going to be covering, of course, is the uh, the sessions of January 1977 that didn't exactly go to plan. But before we uh -huh. uh, before we cover that, um, let me just uh, I said in my introduction about uh, Creative Workshop was founded by singer songwriter and producer Buzz Kaysen in 1970. But something that people may not know is that Buzz co-wrote a very successful song, didn't he? Well, Everlasting Love, um, he and Matt Gaden wrote, and which happened to be, uh, I was a, uh, a budding wannabe engineer working at Foster Recording, which was owned by Monument Records. Uh -huh. And um, I had just sort of, you know, got to a place where I could actually do the job and uh, and Buzz and Mac uh, wanted me to be the engineer to do Everlasting Love. And that was uh, my first master session as an engineer. Oh, really? Yeah, that was my very, that was my very first one. Um, and, um, and who knows? <laughs> that song will outlive everybody, man. It's such a wonderful, a wonderful tune. Yeah, know? yeah. Just in case people don't uh, remember it, but I'm sure they do, it's the one that goes, open up your eyes, then you'll realize, here I stand with my everlasting love. That's it, that's it. And uh, yeah. probably the most well-known version is by Love Affair, actually, which made number one in the UK uh, in 1968. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Buzz has his own version as well, doesn't he? And I've seen Buzz actually uh, singing it on, live on YouTube quite a few times, so people should check that out. Yeah, well, there's there's three versions. Well, I'll tell you what, the song is really recorded. Even you two recorded the song. Yes. So, uh, but anyway, the first was Robert Knight, and that was a, uh, you know, like a top ten record, pop record. And then, only about four or five years later, uh, Carl Carlton recorded it and it was an R&B well, it was a pop number one record and then Gloria Estefan recorded it and then it just went on and on and on you know Yeah. But uh, and then the duo that you're talking about um, I do remember that record but it is it's just a, it's a great tune and also uh, Buzz uh, wrote you know a bunch of other songs that were quite successful the Beatles cut one of his songs Yeah. Um, 
that's on a live album, uh, a live radio show album, Soldiers of Love is what it is. And so um, he's been very successful and kind of, um, I don't want to say renegade, but somebody that was always um, leaning more towards the uh, pop R&B side of what Nashville was doing at the time, opposed to just doing mainstream country. Yeah. Like Buzz was always on the edge. And, um, and he said, obviously my first client, you know, as an engineer, and then fast forward about seven or eight years. And my career had developed really well. And I had engineered proud Mary, uh, for I can Tina Turner. And then we, couple other albums with them and wrote some songs that Tina recorded and then worked on a lot of hit records. But then, you know, life changes and Buzz and I got back together and uh, we together we built Creative Workshop. Yeah, you. Uh, so let, let's just let's just give a, everybody a little bit of a timeline. So Buzz founded Creative Workshop in 1970 and you, you weren't the first engineer. Tell me who the first engineer was. Yes, it was Travis. Travis, Travis Turk. Turk. Travis Turk, yeah. And then tra Travis left in uh, 1976, is that correct? And then you, you took over, uh, yeah? 75, I think. Yeah, okay. Well, it could have been 70. It could have been. Uh, and you, uh, you and Buzz renovated the studio. Correct, yeah. They, uh, we, yeah, we completely, we actually built all new property a whole new building on some adjacent property. Um, but yeah, that, uh, I was working for United recording in Las Vegas. And that's where I did uh, proud Mary and worked on the Aquarius album with the fifth dimension and all kinds of different stuff. And in fact, speaking of Elvis, uh, suspicious minds, all of the horns, background vo voices, and maybe something else strings, all of that was done at United Recording in Las Vegas. Wow. And then Bill Porter, who was my boss out there, very, very famous engineer, uh, he, he mixed that record. And, um, and so that was actually, that was actually done there. Tracks were cut in Memphis, of course. Yeah, well, uh, Bill, Bill goes way, way back with Elvis, doesn't he, to the early 60s? Oh, yeah. Bill, uh, Bill did all of his records that were cut in Nashville up until he left RCA, you know? Um, and Fred Foster actually woofed him away <laughs> from RCA, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. and you know, Chet Atkins and I were having a conversation before Chet died and he said, you know, man, I've had some great engineers working at RCA, great guys, you know, but he said, boy, when Bill Porter left, the place was never quite the same. That's an exact quote, you know? Yeah. Um, but anyway, I was out there um, working at United. I wanted to be the chief engineer there. And my producing career started taking off a little bit there. Uh, when Buzz, like in 70, and, and Travis started Creative Workshop. And then I came back to Nashville in 75, or maybe 76, I'm not quite sure. But um, that's when Buzz and I reunited and he asked me, man, I, he said, I really want to build, I want to build the best studio in town. And he asked me if I would work with him again and, and team up, and I was just thrilled to do so. And so that's how 
creative. And there was a lot of hit records cut there. You know, like Olivia Newton-John's first album she recorded uh, in the U.S., uh, I did it in that in that studio, Creative. And that was like Sam and Don't Stop Believing uh-huh. and some other big hits. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I mentioned Jimmy Buffett in the uh, in the intro, but, I mean, Roy Orbison's cut records there, Merle Haggard, J- uh, Jerry Reed. Yeah. Jerry had a, had a connection with Elvis. You've just mentioned Olivia Newton-John, The Judds, Glenn Campbell, Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. That's just a few that I've just got jotted down here. That's correct, yeah. And then, of course, we come to January 1977. And w- what was the first thing you knew about uh, Elvis being scheduled to record that uh, that that month? Well, uh, uh, Felton Jarvis, his producer, called me and uh, and said, "Brent, um, can I come over this afternoon?" And I and yeah, I just wrapped up the session, <clears throat> and I said, "Sure, Felton." I said, "Come on over." And so he came by the studio. I don't think he'd ever. Be, I don't think he'd been in there before. And uh, he walked in and and you know looked around. And he said, "Well, this is a cool looking place, man." And by the way, it was the first Westlake. Uh, Tom Hidley, at that time, was the premier studio designer in the world. You know, and um, and his company was called Westlake Audio, and built so many famous studios. It's just unbelievable. And that's who we hired to design um, the new creative, so to speak. Okay. And so uh, it was. It was a. Well, it still is. It's a really cool looking place. So anyway, Felton uh, came in and and just loved the feel of it. He said, "Well, can I hear some music?" And so I had just wrapped up, I think, a Dave Loggins record that I was producing, and of course, engineered it there. And so I played him some of that, and he said, "God, it sounds great, man." So um, I've talked Elvis into finally walk, coming back into a studio. He hadn't been in the studio in years. And he said, I've, I've, I want him to come to Nashville and record again. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he said, man, I want to be, you know, not going back to the RCAB or even the new, the big studio, you know, uh, but I want to do it in someplace cool. And he said, God, I think this is the place. I think he'd love it here. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, all about that, you know. So anyway, um, maybe that was two or three weeks out. I, I couldn't quite tell you for sure, Steve. But uh, anyway, that's how the whole thing that started with him just coming over, catching a vibe of the place, and then deciding that he thought it would be a, a great environment for Elvis to cut, you know. And then it was booked for, uh, I believe, uh, the sessions were due to begin on January the 20th. Um, Thursday, Thursday, January the twentieth for a week, um, and um, it was it was his uh, it was his live band, wasn't it? That were going to play along with him: James Burton, John Wilkinson, Ronnie Tut, obviously David Briggs, Jerry Chef, uh, the JD Sumner and Stamps, uh, Myrna, uh, Myrna Smith, uh, Cheryl Nielsen. They they were all there, ready and waiting, uh, and they waited and waited. Unfortunately, didn't they? Well, yeah. Uh... Yeah, and actually, uh, there was a couple of Nashville ringers in there, too. Uh, Chip Young. Uh, Chip Young was on electric guitar. Oh, yes, that's right. And uh, mm-hmm. and then uh, also uh, David Briggs was there. But David played off and on with Elvis's band, too. David was there, and also Tony Brown was there. Uh-huh. And uh, one was playing, I guess, probably B3, and the other one piano. Uh, not quite sure. Um or actually, there was a funky on way down 
there was a funky uh, kind of a uh, tricked out Wolitzer sound on that thing. But anyway, uh, it was basically uh, that band, which I knew, by the way, really, really well, because I met those guys about two or three years earlier, maybe just two years, out in Las Vegas, and um, I engineered the uh, Sammy Davis Jr. album called Mr. Bojangles. And, um, and that's the first time I met Jimmy Bowen, who was a real famous music character. Yeah. But anyway, the rhythm section that, uh, that Jimmy hired to do the Sammy Davis record was Ronnie Tut, Jerry Sheff, you know, um, and those guys, uh, Burton. And uh, Allison was there, and um, I think that was basically just four pieces, I think. And uh, so, uh, and then I had actually hired that same rhythm section to do an album uh, that I produced like a year later. So I had a really good relationship with all of those guys, and it was it was so cool having them, um, you know, in our studio. I just I just loved it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another uh, chap, actually, I've got written down here was Larry Strickland. Larry was in the studio as well, and I spoke to Larry a couple of years ago. Uh, really fine, fine guy, really nice guy, gentleman. Yeah, Larry, uh, of course, I know Larry really well uh, because, you know, I discovered the judge and produced all those records. And, of course, you know, Larry was a boyfriend when we first, <laughs> when he first, you know, I, I first met the girls. And then, you know, a few years later, they got married. But, yeah, Larry, Larry and I are, are very close, you know, very close. Yeah, as I said, uh, he's a real gentleman. Um, I, I've got a couple of uh, song titles jotted down here that were rumoured that Elvis was going to record. Um, that's uh, that's what you do to me. Uh, Energy, Rainy Night in Georgia, By Day by Day, Lean on Me, and Yes, I Do. Um, mm. I mean, do, do you do you know do you know what, what the song titles were that Elvis was due to record? Are those right? Well, they had about um, four or five tunes that the band had prepared for, they had rehearsed, you know, at Graceland. And, uh, but none of those songs, I know uh, none of those songs actually uh, got on the drawing board. The only, in fact, um, how the whole thing started to take shape, if you want to jump into that now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, is, um, you know, we uh, the sessions were to start at two, and then... We and that's not with Elvis. That would just be with the band, and we'd get all the sounds on all the instruments, drum sounds, and just everything. And uh, and one of the guys that sings harmony with Elvis actually would get on Elvis's mic and and he would sing a song like "Way Down" or whatever it was. And I would set the limiter and I set the EQ, you know, and reverb and earphones. I mean, we had it set up, and um, and then Elvis was due to show up. You know, any time, maybe between probably six o'clock, because he was really a night guy. I oh, mean, yeah. Super. Uh, yeah. And uh, we were all absolutely uh, fine tuned. And um, he had like a whole wing of the Sheridan South um, uh, Motel on Harding Place, I think it was, uh, which is only about not even barely two miles away from the studio. And, um, and Felton would call and say, Hey, we're ready to go up. What do you feel like? And that would say, yeah, come on, come on, come on over. So 
Felton would go to the um, would go over to the hotel and and they'd sit there and hang out for an hour or so, and then you know Felton would come back like I mean two or three hours later and say Elvis is right behind me. He'll be in about fifteen minutes, and here's the tune he wants to do. So we all get psyched up. Every wait like an hour or so, and then Felton would go back to the hotel <laughs> and be gone for another hour or so. And this is getting pretty late. And then he'd come back and say, okay, okay, he's ready to go. I mean, you know, he's ready. Let's get ready. Here's the thing he wants to do. And then, um, no Elvis. And then another hour would go by, and, and this went on until like four in the morning. Mm-hmm. And then finally, Felton will come back and say, everybody go home. Try, try to get some sleep. We'll see everybody be back here at 2 or 3 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. So, we did. This went on for two days of like us being there at 2 or 3 in the afternoon and staying till, you know, 4 or 5 in the morning and just doing nothing except getting sounds and uh, maybe jamming a little bit, you know. And, um, and, and, you know, we were all sort of worn out by then. And so the last day, the last time, uh, Felton comes back in, after going back and forth a few times. And Felton goes back. He says, okay, I'm telling you right now, he's on his way. I saw him get into his car. And he just missed the stoplight on Thompson Lane. Otherwise, he'd be here the same time I am. So as soon as that light turns green, man, he's going to pop through and let's get ready to go. But then we're all psyched up again. And then, and then, and then, <laughs> what he did, he actually didn't go straight through the stoplight. He hung a right and went to the airport and went home to Memphis. Oh, my goodness. And, <laughs> oh, my God. We were freaked out, man. And um, and so, anyway, I mean, Felton, and I felt so sorry for Felton, because I am telling you, you're talking about a lot of money that just got flushed down the toilet. Yeah. Yeah, of course, because, uh, I mean, the, the studio time and, the, of course, the guys had to be paid whether Elvis showed up or not. And these are double-scale players, maybe even triple-scale back then. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and then all the travel time and hotels are getting put up into, and all the girls, you know, I mean, God almighty, it was like, I mean, a lot of dinero. So anyway, uh, after all the players left, uh you know, he says to me, uh, well, Brett, what, what are you doing tomorrow? He said, I said, well, I'm not doing anything. I'm supposed to be yours. Mm. But I said, don't worry about the studio time. I won't charge you anything. We'll just, you know, we'll just call it a day and that's it. So anyway, he said, no, no. He said, God, I, I got to get something done. He said, I've already told the band to show back up like around maybe two or three in the afternoon. And I said, to do what? <laughs> and he said, well, I got some stuff I want to listen to with you. He said, I've got some tapes in the trunk of my car that have been there for like weeks. And he said, uh, there's some, you know, when Elvis was at Graceland in the jungle room there, and the band was set up in this little room, and that's where they were rehearsing. And he said the RCA remote truck was parked outside, and they recorded everything. And I said, well, good for them. He said, well, I mean, he said, I want to go through all those tapes and see if we could find something that we might be able to work on. And I said, well, Felton, I'm yours, man. So, yeah. So, you know, went home and came back the next day, and we listened to, I don't know, four or five reels of two-inch tape. 
And um, there's two songs that he did uh, repeatedly, uh, and maybe well, none of them all the way through. Like not like there was no version of "Way Down" or "Pledging My Love" that there was a beginning to an end. Mm-hmm. You know, they broke down in the middle, then he'd pick it back up again. Just rehearsing, right? Yeah. And so, um, but Felton asked me, he said, man, he said, can you put together a vocal with this? I said, you know, I mean, what do you mean? He said, well, we've got probably three or four versions or takes of Way Down, and there is a beginning and there is an ending. Do you think there's enough there to put a vocal together? And I said, well, I don't know. He said, well, I'm going to leave because I want to come back and hear it fresh. And I don't, I don't want to know what you had to do to get, if you can do it. And I said, God. So anyway, Felton takes off. And I, you know, I listened to like four takes or so maybe or of way down. And I did. I, I thought, well, this is a, you know, this is a pretty good one half of a first verse on this take. Mm-hmm. And then on another take, well, there he picked it up again. You know, you know this sounds good. And so, Probably the the multi track, the two inch tape. I mean, I bet there was probably a dozen edits from different takes to get, you know, a vocal put together. Mm-hmm. And then the idea would be to replace the music recorded cleanly and properly in the studio. Right, that was the plan, and uh, which we wound up doing. Um, the band came in, you know, later on and, and felt and, you know, played, you know, the what I put together and everybody said, man, that, that sounds quite good. So anyway, um, I we did the bass and drums first. I do remember that. And then um, I remember Chip playing some guitar to it and, um, you know, and then uh, Tony and, uh, and Briggs came in and played. I mean, we just, you know, did it a couple of people at a time and just replaced all of the, uh, all the music. And of course, added some additional parts. And, um, that's how that record was put together. And then the very same that we did the very same thing on pledging my love. Yeah. And, and that actually became Elvis's final, uh, single, uh, way down backed by pledging my love before his death. That's correct. That's absolutely right. And so, anyway, once we got all the instruments recorded, then the tough part came in mixing. Because while we were recording, you know, I didn't have Elvis's voice, you know, way out front, you know. I mean, I just had it, you know, tucked into where everybody could tell, okay, you know, this is, this. here's the tune. But... <clears throat> When you get this thing and you're going to make a final mix on it, I mean, you can't have Elvis tucked behind the band, right? You got to have him out where he needs to be. Well, thank you very much. Now you're hearing in his microphone some of the original band recorded at Graceland because all he had was a handheld microphone and he was in the same room with the drums and the guitars and everything else. They couldn't get proper separation, could they? There was a lot of the instruments bleeding into his microphone. Oh, of course. I mean, you got Elvis singing his microphone where well, you got a drummer that's not 15 feet away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, 
oh my God. And this was before automation. It was before all the techniques and all the equipment that we have today. And so when we, when I got Elvis's voice to where you'd want to hear it, every time he would quit singing, you'd hear the other band. And so I would be ducking the fader that had Elvis's voice on it. Um, I mean, right after he would finish a phrase, I mean, just four or five words, wham, I'd pull that fader down and, um, and then try to get it back up at the same level for the next line. I mean, it was a nightmare. It does sound like a nightmare, I must admit. <laughs> oh, no, it was. And, and the deal was, um, I, I couldn't do it. And so then I had to say, okay, then I'm just going to edit. You know, I'm going to just record, you know, two or three lines and then stop, put some splicing tape in, and then I'll do the next, and then I'll do the next. And so anyway, the stereo mix on that thing, I don't, God almighty, it looked like a blur when it was going by the tape machine of all the edits I had to do. But finally I got it down and, um, and, and, and felt and came back to the studio and, and cause he didn't like to be when I was fixing cause he did like to hear things for the fresh air. And so when I got done with it, man, I mean, I just thought it was awful. I mean, I said, Oh, I'm so embarrassed. One of the reasons Steve, I was embarrassed is that what we talked about is my mentor the guy that gave me my first job in the industry, Bill Porter, had made all of those unbelievable sounding records on Elvis, right? Mm -hmm. Well, here I am, his, you know, guy that he brought into the business, and I get to work with Elvis, you know, 30 years later, whatever it was, and this is it? You know, <laughs> I was embarrassed by it because I thought it sounded so bad. And, um, but anyway, felt and loved it and said, man, that's great. Let's do Passion My Love. And so, well, well there you go again. So we did the very same thing. And um, and like you said, it was um, those two were, I mean, I'm, I've, I was, to be, I'll tell you what now. It sounds like I was having, like, going to a dentist to get a root canal with no novocator stuff. That wasn't it. <laughs> because... I mean, I adored Elvis Presley. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, some of his songs early on when I was like, you know, 13 or 14 years old, you know, with Heartbreak Hotel and Money Honey and all the Sun Record stuff. I mean, I, those, those had a, I mean, an impact on my life. Yes. So for me to be able to work with him, even in the fashion that it happened was such an honor. Um, but it was a God Almighty. It was a labor of love, I can tell you. Well, um, I, I'm I, I'm probably speaking for a lot of fans when I say you know all the work that went into those two tracks is absolutely amazing, and it's a testament to your skill as an engineer how well those two tracks turned out. That's what I've got to say to you, uh, Brent. <laughs> well, you know what's funny is. Only about maybe, maybe like maybe 10 years ago or even less, uh, my wife and I were up in Colorado on vacation. Uh, and we were in this little mountain town. And my wife, Janelle, had it was a leather store. And she picked up like a little leather purse or something like that, you know. And they've got, um, I think it was the Elvis 30 number ones or something like that, uh, some number one package. And, and she's up at the counter. And she's got a credit card out, and I'm you know behind her, and um, 
and they got this Elvis record playing. And man, it's like money, honey. Uh, oh my God, what a great record. And, and all this stuff, you know, Suspicious Minds played. And all of a sudden, I'm hearing this tune. And I'm going, yeah, right, okay, yeah, funky, good, I love this. And all, all of a sudden, I said, well, damn, that's the one that I did. <laughs> yeah. I was floored. And so then I came up, I came up behind Janelle and I said, baby, listen to this. This doesn't sound like crap. It actually sounds great. And so the guy that was checking her out was this young, real physical, weightlifting looking kind of guy with tattoos all over him, bald headed. He looked at me and says, Hey man, this is the king. You don't talk crap around the king. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, I can't explain this, but I said, oh, no, man, I'm, you're cool. I love the king, too. Yeah. But it was so funny because he didn't appreciate my comments. <laughs> he, did, he didn't but, realize uh, just what you, who he was talking to, probably. Well, yeah. And, and then, you know, it was no time to say, oh, buddy, I would just let me, let me explain to you why I just said what I said. No, no, no. It wasn't time for that. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, no, as, as, and, and, and Steve, I am. I'm very, I'm very proud of that record. And, um, and um, anyway, I, it was a uh, I, I God I would have given anything to if I met him, you know. I did get to see Elvis on his opening night in Vegas. You did see him. Oh yeah, it was crazy, and I had great seats because when Elvis Presley found out that Bill Porter, his favorite engineer of all time, was living in Vegas, had a recording studio was working on Suspicious Minds, and he said, well, this guy's going to mix my live show. And uh, I think the fans will appreciate this, but at that time in Vegas, and Vegas still is, it's the most union town that's ever been on, came into existence on this planet. I mean, it's the unions control everything. Mm -hmm. and, and so anyway, they have union engineers. Guys that, you know, mix Sinatra and mix Paul Anka and mix all the stars that were working there, you know. And and Elvis finds out that Bill Porter is in town. And so he says to somebody that, you know, um, during rehearsals, that uh, I've got my own sound guy coming. And the guys at the hotel, it was Hilton, they said that, uh, well, that's not necessary. We have our people. Mm -hmm. And and Elvis and I'm just making stuff up now, but Elvis might have said something like, "Well, no, no, no. You have your people. I have my guy. You know what I mean?" <laughs> but, but it was a conversation like that. Yeah. And so anyway, uh, they just said Elvis. The answer is no. It is absolutely not. This is a union. You know, we go by the rules here, and our engineer that's going to mix us saying he's wonderful. And Elvis says, you don't understand. You want me to open tonight? Bill Porter mixes the show. In fact, he's going to be here in about 10 minutes to start rehearsals with me. Mm. And the guy says, no, ain't going to happen. And Elvis says, well, let me juice up my play and I'm going home. Wow. That was words like that were spoken. Yeah, well, nobody says no to Elvis Presley, that's for sure. Well, it sure as hell didn't, because I'm telling you, he would have done it. He'd have yeah. left in a heartbeat. Yes, of course he would. And and he, I guarantee you, whoever he was talking to, I'm sure it was the manager of the hotel, 
got that loud and clear. And so, enter Bill Porter, who from that time on mixed all of Elvis's show, wound up touring with him. In fact, he was touring with Elvis up until Elvis died. Yes. Mixed all of his shows, yeah. you know, everything. And, um, and after that, that whole thing broke apart of like, um, when artists come in, uh, they could have their own engineers or engineers, producers oversee the mixing and basically mixing. And Bill Porter was the first one to ever do that. Um, and so that was pretty nice. Well, I was sitting up there, I was sitting in the booth with Bill in the, that first show. And I'm telling you, man, it was a star's who's who's I mean, everybody wanted to be there. And you know, man, how people want to be seated last, like the biggest star wanted to make the last entrance. Mm -hmm. And you know who it was? Sly Stone. Sly Stone came in, man, with two or three of the, you know, of his entourage folks. Yeah. And with a big kind of a pirate hat with plumes off of it and everything. <laughs> and maybe even ape, I don't know, but a really totally outrageous outfit. And he was the last guy to take his seat right down in front, second before the curtain came up, you know? Mm -hmm. So anyway, it was, it was quite tonight. Well, Elvis was definitely the big, the biggest star that night. You know, he was going to out, outshine everybody that night, wasn't he? Oh, are you kidding me? They were all there for him, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. and, and lapped up every single word that came out of his mouth, you know, a note that came out of his mouth. Absolutely. Um, I heard uh, people say that um, the it was the only time he was the only performer that would get people out of the casinos and into the showrooms to watch the shows, and they didn't like him to go on too long because the longer the show went on, the less gambling people would do. Uh, well, you know, I don't know. I, I I'm not too sure. I agree with because when the um, Every show was sold out, number one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not like be at the craps table and say, oh, man, that's Elvis. I think I'll go in and see it. Wrong. There's no seats available. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm not too sure I would go along with that. And I don't know how many times Elvis would go past his show. Because it was a set. It wasn't like um, The Grateful Dead. Yeah, you know, who don't even have a set list. They just play whatever they want to play, whatever it pops in Garcia's mind or whoever. You know, Elvis thing, because there was a huge orchestra behind him. Mm -hmm. And so you just can't be winging it all the time, no. you know? No, so um, I would imagine that those, um, his hour and a half show or whatever it was, I imagine it was pretty much, pretty much the same every night, I would mm. imagine, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, there was a few differences uh, throughout the years, but there was a set list that he, that he did, yeah. Uh, attendances definitely went up and, and all that when Elvis was in town, that's for sure. It was the most busiest time when he did his seasons. Yeah. Oh, there's no question about that. You know, the whole town would be a, a buzz, so to speak. Yeah, he was, like, he was like a magnet. No, totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Just going back to the January sessions for one minute, were you ever told the reason why he didn't show up at the studio? Never. It was just, it, it was just, he was just, it was, it was a whim and he, he didn't feel like recording probably. 
Yeah, you know, and um, you know, I, I mean, there'd be, I guess, there'd be no reason for me to speculate. Mm. You know, uh, um, obviously, at the end of the day, he just he just didn't want to do it. Mm. You know, and yeah. and for whatever reasons or whatever the mindset was, but uh, but I'm sure he was happy with the outcome that came from it. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know. Well, I, I spoke to I spoke to his girlfriend, uh, who, who was his girlfriend at the time, Ginger Alden, and there was a rumor going around that uh, they fell out and there was an argument between them. But she denied that, and I don't think it was that either. Uh, I just don't think Elvis might have been in the frame of mind for recording. Yeah, well, you know, he hadn't been in the studio for years. No, that's right. That's right. I mean, you can't really call the jungle room sessions a studio setting. <laughs> it was his house. No, you can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so um, maybe it was just that particular environment. Um, I don't know. Or maybe at the end of the day, maybe he didn't think the songs are what they needed to be. I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. We'll never yeah. we'll never know for sure now why it was just a, a decision he made and, and – uh, Unfortunately, uh, they didn't go ahead. Uh, talk to me about Creative Workshop today. Obviously, it's still a, a very, very successful uh, studio. Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, I'm not involved with it. Obviously, I built, uh, I built a studio. Well, Buzz, Buzz and I, the studio back in the day got so busy that we needed a second room. And by then, my career not only as an engineer, but as a producer had really taken off. And I had, uh, you know, a number of really big hit records, Bluer Than Blue, uh, Dottie West, Less Than Even, and, and just a whole bunch of very successful records. And, and we just needed another room. So we had property right next door and we built what's called Creative Recording. And so now uh, we had two studios right next door to each other. And that's how we operated for 10 or 15 years, I think. And, uh, and then finally, um, I wound up selling my interest in that and then built a smaller studio for myself and um, still not a stone's throw away from my original studio with Buzz. In fact, we shared the same parking lot. It was <laughs> this little quadrangle thing. And, um, and so anyway, um, Buzz has a, he has a son, his name is Parker and is just a, um, a wonderful young man and a, a great, tremendous engineer, really good engineer. And, uh, so Parker runs the place now and, um, and they, you know, they have some clients coming in and out. And, uh, what I love about it is when I go over there. It is like walking into a time warp. <laughs> They've even got some of the same shag carpet that we put down in the seventies in some places. Yeah. I mean, it's still to this day, one of the most vibiest, uh, studios in town. And I, you know, I'm, um, I, I keep telling myself all the time, I have got to go back there with the right artist and cut some tracks again over there. But I never get around to it because now I've got my own studio, right, in another place. Yeah. And so it's difficult to kind of get away from my home base. But I'll tell you, I really need to do it because um, every time I go over there, it brings back so many memories. Um, 
that you know i just um, it's just got it's just a great place it's a great vibe about the place yeah i've been looking at some of the photographs on the website the creative workshop website and it does look a really funky place i'd say uh, elvis yeah. would have felt at home there i think he would have it's such a drag that uh that he didn't show up you know but you know there you go yeah there you go brent it's been absolutely fabulous speaking to you i I, even uh myself being an elvis fan for over 50 years has learned a few things from you today and i always say you know if you can't learn something new then you know (laughs) what's the point it's nice to be able to learn something new every day Mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely well i enjoyed it it was a, a great interview and um and I'm glad you're uh, you're keeping the king going, man. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's the whole uh, purpose of my channel is to keep uh, keep his name and legacy alive uh, because uh, and to turn new fans on as well. The 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 uh, the the recent Baz Luhrmann movie has done a lot to sort of create new fans and younger fans as well because as the old fans die off, we'll need new fans coming through. Absolutely, absolutely. Brent, uh, th- I know you're a busy guy, and uh, I would like to thank you once again for uh, making room in your busy schedule to talk to me. It's uh, it's most appreciated. Well, thank you so much, and I uh, I appreciate what you're doing. God bless you, man. And keep rocking. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Why? Cheers, Brent. Bye-bye. 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 My thanks once again to Brent for joining me on the show and sharing his fascinating stories about waiting for Elvis at Creative Workshop and the engineering work he did on the tracks Way Down and Pledging My Love. Please check out my other interviews on this channel with people who knew and worked with Elvis. Also a reminder that I broadcast live on YouTube every Sunday when there is a featured Elvis topic, a fan of the month quiz with prizes up for grabs, You can chat with other Elvis fans live and you can also phone in the show and discuss all things Elvis. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join me next time on Elvis the Ultimate Fan Channel.